This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight. They have all concurred and agreed to give the monitoring and verification team of the African Union full access that's former Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta on Ethiopian and Tigrayan negotiators agreeing to let the African Union monitor a ceasefire in their two-year-old war. Details coming up. Also, Burkina Faso has ordered a high-ranking UN official to leave. And we hear now how the investigation into former U.S. President Trump is seen in Africa. All these and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Former Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta will travel to Ethiopia's Tigray region to oversee monitoring of last month's peace deal. Ethiopian federal and Tigray region officials agreed late last night at talks in Nairobi to grant the African Union full access to the region to oversee an end to the two-year conflict. Mohamed Yusuf reports from Nairobi, Kenya. Ethiopian military leadership and representatives of the rebel Tigray People's Liberation Front have agreed to establish a joint monitoring team to oversee the peace agreement signed in November. The agreement, signed in South Africa, ended two years of fighting between the federal government and TPLF that killed hundreds of thousands and displaced millions. Former Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, who is also part of the mediating team, said Thursday the warring factions have agreed to have a body monitor the peace deal. They have all concurred and agreed to give the monitoring and verification team of the African Union full access, full 360-degree uh, viewpoint to ensure that all the elements of the agreement are actually going to be implemented. The mediators who met peace negotiators in Nairobi this week expressed confidence in normalcy returning to the Tigray region and peace in Ethiopia. Professor Chacha Nyegoti Chacha, an expert in diplomacy and international relations, says the African Union must play its role in solving conflicts in the continent. The problem with the African Union is that uh, sometimes uh, resolutions and determination of this nature has not been followed by tangible results in the field. But we're hoping that this time around, the warring parties will be able to appreciate the fact that they need very urgently to have a solution to the problems. The war between the Ethiopian government and the Tigray rubber group broke out in November 2020 and spread to the Amhara and Afar regions. The peace deal has brought some relief to the suffering population in the north of the country. Ethiopian leaders have been meeting to discuss ways of carrying out the disarmament of rebels in Tigray and neighboring regions and negotiate the withdrawal of Eritrean forces who assisted the Ethiopian army. Kenyatta says his team and African Union representatives will visit Tigray's capital to check on the progress of the peace agreement. They have uh, been negotiating for the last two days, but we agreed that the true statement that they need to make will be the statement they make when we are in Mekele in the next few days, observing 
and verifying the actions. Because documents are one thing. What we want now is the deliverables. And this is why we are heading to Mekele. There was no immediate word on when Kenyatta will go to Tigray. Chacha says the Kenyatta team's visit will help solve the outstanding issues in the peace deal. The action of visiting will give them first-hand information and the knowledge about the situation on the ground. And when that situation on the ground is clearly understood, then the parties concerned, including the mediators, can understand and appreciate uh, the way they will approach uh, the resolution in order for them to create an atmosphere that can bring about peace. Some of the peace deal's provisions have already been implemented, including humanitarian aid and the restoration of banking and telecommunication services. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. So as we just reported, uh, representatives of Ethiopia's government and Tigrayan rebels who met in Nairobi this week are discussing the next steps for a peace deal to end the two-year-old war in the Tigray region. Vanda Felbab-Brown is senior fellow at the Strobe Talbot Center for Security, Strategy and Technology in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. She's also the director of the Initiative on Non-State Armed Actors as well as co-director of the Africa Security Initiative. She tells me the deal, which came about after Tigrayan forces lost on the battlefield, still has tremendous hurdles to overcome. So the fact that the peace deal was finally signed uh, in November after two years, really, of enormous suffering that went way beyond simply what happened on the battlefield, but that also included the starvation of millions of people in the Tigray region as the Ethiopian government cut off Tigray from the supply of humanitarian aid, food, uh, medicine, electricity, banking, telephones. So the fact that the deal was finally signed in November is is great. Of course, it's a deal that emerged because uh, the Tigray forces uh, this fall that essentially crashed on the battlefield. So now that there is a peace deal, do you think will it hold up? Well, the RSC, the peace deal has held up for several weeks now. And so that's a very positive sign. At the same time, of course, a tremendous amount of issues remains to be worked out. The Tigray authorities have agreed to the disarmament of Tigray forces, which are estimated even after the uh, bloodshed of the fall to be somewhere between 200 and 250,000. But what kind of disarmament will take place? Will there be any reintegration for uh, the former Tigray soldiers? Any support for them? The uh, entire Tigray region, as I mentioned, has been starved for two years. So what kind of economic reconstruction, rebuilding, consistent delivery of services will take place is another enormous issue uh, yet to be seen. There is the larger issue of what kind of political um, arrangements will be developed, what kind of self-governing local authority will the Tigray have. And finally, there is the issue of accountability and justice. What kind of uh, justice measures will take place for all the atrocities that were committed by all sides? How will victims uh, be recognized and compensated? Will the issues of massacre, sexual slavery, forced disappearance be just swept under the carpet? Or will there be serious inquiries as to all the perpetrators on all sides of the conflict? 
And Vanda, uh, we have to also talk about the elephant in the room. Eritrea seems to be a sticking point in, in this whole affair, the role of Eritrea. No, you're absolutely right. The Eritrean forces uh, have been absolutely essential for helping uh, the Ethiopian federal forces to defeat uh, the Tigray, and they were essentially various parts of the conflict. The Eritrean government has uh, long seen um, the TPLF uh, as uh, a, a mortal enemy, and so the big question is, will they leave as they should, as they need to, because if they continue uh, staying in Tigray, that creates an enormously volatile situation that really denies any kind of possibility of deeper reconciliation and addressing the needs and grievances of the Tigray people. According to your information, is there aid uh, arriving again after months and months of restrictions? Is uh, uh, the limited banking service, has it returned? Consistent confirmation is that telecommunications has returned to uh, the Tigray region. There is consistent reporting and that seems to be holding over many days. As far as humanitarian aid is concerned, the issue is far more contentious. Humanitarian convoys have gone into the Tigray regions and uh, several roads were uh, reopened. So some deliveries have taken place. Obviously, this is not sufficient because uh, we are really looking at a situation where over a million of people were in essentially famine, starvation for many months now. In a previous version of a ceasefire in the June-July uh, period, it was the lack of uh, delivery, uh, the lack of fulfillment of the promise that humanitarian delivery will start taking place that ultimately led to the breakdown of the ceasefire and the renewal of the fighting. That was Vanda Felbab Brown, a senior fellow in the Strobe Talbot Center for Security, Strategy and Technology in the Foreign Policy Program. At Brookings, she spoke with me from Washington, D.C. A gunman in Paris has killed at least three people and wounded several others in an attack on a Kurdish cultural center and cafe. Reuters says a 69-year-old man was arrested after he fired multiple shots in the capital's trendy 10th district, which is also home to a large Kurdish population. News services say the white gunman was a train driver and was known for two previous attempted murders in 2016 and 2021, including of migrants living in tents. The French news agency AFP said that after today's shootings, the shooter fled to a hair salon next door where he was caught. Two people were on the floor with, uh, with leg wounds. The shooter was taken to the hospital for injuries, including to the face. AFP says the French interior ministry has warned about potential violence by far-right extremists. The courts are a Muslim group, but non-Arab ethnic group, living largely in Syria, Iraq and Iran. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. The U.S. House January 6th panel has recommended criminal charges be brought against Donald Trump, accusing the former president of fomenting an insurrection and conspiring to subvert the outcome of the 2020 election. It's the first time in American history that Congress has recommended charges against a former U.S. president. So how do Africans view what is happening in the U.S. and are they 
closely following what is happening. Ibrahima Amadu Niang, an independent African political scientist based in Dakar, Senegal, tells VOA's Carol Van Dam he views the situation in the U.S. as proof that democracy is in crisis. For a country like the U.S., which is seen as a champion of democracy, to be going through this is, is quite you know, uh, frightening for the state of democracy in the world. But that being said, you know, I think we've had similar cases in, in, in Africa. For instance, in, in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, when President Gbagbo was refusing to, to concede defeat despite certification by the United Nations. And, uh, you know, it ended up at the ICC, as we all know. Uh, although, you know, obviously he's been released uh, recently, but at least the recommendations to persecute him have, you know, were actually taken very seriously and concrete actions were taken. Uh, similar cases, not necessarily related to elections, but also, you know, in Sudan, uh, with President al-Bashir also, you know, faced trial by, you know, ICC, his country, you know, uh, agreeing to hand it, the case over to the International Criminal Court. So, you know, those are a few examples, you know, there are many, many, but uh, actually for me, the, the most similar example is actually the, the Cote d'Ivoire 2010 uh, post-election uh, you know, case where President Gbagbo and Blegude were both charged before ICC. Those were international charges, which is a little different, and, and I'm glad you pointed those out, but it is a little different when, you know, Trump is not being charged with war crimes, uh, crimes against humanity. These are different kinds of charges, but charges of being involved with this insurrection. Do you see any similarities with this kind of instance with countries in Africa? Yes, definitely. I will come back again on the Cote d'Ivoire case, which was also, you know, I think the charges, some of the charges were also related to, you know, insurrection and the, the you know, the refusal of uh, President Gbagbo to accept a decision by the, you know, constitutional court. So I think, you know, for me, Cote d'Ivoire is actually the, the, the most eloquent example of, of what is actually happening now in the in the U.S., so there you are in Dakar. Would you say that does it seem like a lot of Africans are taking this very seriously and watching and wondering what's going to happen in the United States? I would say yes, because uh, democracy is in crisis. Democracy is in crisis in, in all our countries, you know, even in some of the countries where we live in, where in a few years, I mean, a few years ago, uh, we have made some tremendous progress. You know, we, there are still, you know, now issues that we have to worry about. And, uh, you know, we, we just feel that if the, the state of impunity grows globally, you know, that, you know, uh, we might not have, you know, resources. We might not have, you know, a country as strong as the U.S. that can be looked at uh, as an example by our own leaders, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, the strength of institutions and, the, the, the you know, the functioning of checks and balances. So, Definitely, you know, uh, we are all watching very closely as this can, you know, send a good or a wrong signal to the rest of the world. That's Ibrahima Amadou Niang, an independent political scientist based in Senegal. He was speaking from the Senegalese capital, Dakar, with my colleague, Carol Van Dam. The U.S. National Basketball Association aims to build on the sports popularity in African nations. Recently, VOA's Mariama Diallo sat down with Victor Williams, chief executive officer of NBA Africa, to hear about the plans. 
Well, I am just thrilled to have you here to have sports. I am a lover of sports, and in the middle of all these things that is happening, uh, to have you guys be here is just an amazing thing because it's a huge part of the African uh, lives. Yep. So I just watched you announce some deals, so yep. wanted to hear about it. Uh, what did you announce yep. and the significance of it? So um, we, uh, first of all, excited to be here. Uh, I agree that it is important for sports to be represented. Sports is one of those areas where Africa is world-class. Uh, and has world-class talent and I think at the NBA we're excited to uh, help grow the, bas the game of basketball on the continent but we're also uh, really interested in the opportunity for sport to be a driver of economic growth and, uh, and development as well as for sport to be a vehicle for social impact um, and so those are uh, some of the motivations that we have as we grow our activities in Africa. And so you had, uh, you have an office, you already opened something in Senegal, and the announcement today has to do with doing something else in another country. Mm -hmm. So would you... Yeah, so we have, um, we've had an office in Johannesburg for uh, more than a decade. Uh, we opened an office in Senegal about four years ago. Uh, earlier this year, we opened an office in Lagos, Nigeria, and uh, we just announced that in 2023, we'll be opening an office in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, and this speaks to our commitment to grow our footprint on the continent and to use those offices as springboards to get closer to African fans uh, and to help strengthen the basketball ecosystem in those particular countries and regions. Each of those countries to us represents significant basketball and commercial opportunities. Well, and the competition is usually soccer. Well, I think many people, first of all, are sports fans, and so... Uh, we're always uh, excited about the continent doing well. We are intent on continuing to grow the game of basketball and exposing more African youth at an early age to the game, giving them an opportunity to learn the game, play the game, love the game. And our ambition is that one day African kids will be just as likely to bounce and shoot a basketball as they are to kick a soccer ball. That's well said. Last question. I just want to ask about how does it, how does tra sport translate to the next level? You know, you talk about poverty, you talk about economic opportunity, you talk about so many things that the youth is dealing with, uh, not just in Africa, all over the place. So can you touch on that? Yeah, I mean, and, and I think the ability to address so many issues is one of the reasons why we've invested in starting the Basketball Africa League, which is the first time uh, the NBA has done a professional league outside of uh, North America. So uh, the Basketball Africa League is a league we started for the top 12 African clubs, uh, and we just announced that we'll be playing our third season in uh, Dakar, Cairo, and Kigali. What the Basketball Africa League allows us to do in addressing some of these uh, um, issues is, first of all, it gives African youth something to aspire to and to pursue a professional career on the continent without having to leave and go somewhere else. That was Victor Williams, the CEO of NBA Africa, speaking with my colleague Mariama Diallo here in Washington. Burkina Faso's military government has ordered a high-ranking UN official to leave the country. Reuters says authorities have given no explanation for labeling the UN's resident coordinator, Barbara Manzi, as persona non grata.
The news service notes that Manzi, who has long experience in humanitarian activities in the developing world, was appointed to her post last year. The UN did not immediately comment on the incident. Burkina Faso has been fighting an Islamic insurgency for seven years, largely in the north and east of the country, that has killed thousands and displaced up to two million people. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The Counter-ISIS Finance Group, a working group of the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS, held its 17th meeting on combating ISIS financing worldwide. At the November meeting, the group affirmed that defeating ISIS in Syria and Iraq remains a key priority. Since the last Counter-ISIS Finance Group, or CIFG, meeting in May, the Global Coalition has targeted key ISIS financial leaders and officials in the Middle East. In addition, the U.S. military is working closely with the Syrian Democratic Forces and Iraqi Security Forces to combat the ISIS insurgency in Syria and Iraq. These operations have degraded ISIS's ability to plan, resource, and conduct attacks globally. Despite substantial leadership losses this year, ISIS Corps remains intact and maintains access to as much as $25 million in cash reserves held in Syria and Iraq. The terrorist group amassed these funds during its 2014-2017 to occupation of Iraqi and Syrian territories by selling oil, extorting local economies, and looting banks. ISIS Corps' revenue streams are diminishing due to pressure from the military forces of the global coalition and law enforcement actions in the region. As a result, ISIS leaders rely on declining incomes from extorting local businesses, kidnapping for ransom, looting, and sporadic external donations to fill their coffers. Over the past year, the CIFG has increased its focus on countering ISIS financing in Africa, where ISIS affiliates, branches, networks, and cells seek to gain territorial control control while terrorizing the civilian population. The ISIS branch in Somalia is one of the most important ISIS franchises on the continent, according to CIFG. It serves as a hub for dispersing funds and guidance to ISIS branches and networks throughout Africa. ISIS Somalia receives the majority of its revenue from aggressive extortion tactics that target businesses and civilians in Somalia, generating hundreds of thousands of dollars per month. CIFG welcomed the sanctions the United States imposed on November 1st, targeting ISIS Somalia weapons traffickers and urged other nations to take similar measures. The CIFG is also working to counter ISIS financial networks in other parts of Africa, including the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Tanzania, Uganda, Mozambique, and South Africa, among others. CIFG will continue working closely with its counterterrorism partners to disrupt ISIS funding. Together, the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS will dismantle the financial support networks and achieve the enduring defeat of ISIS and its affiliates. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Bob Bass, thanks for choosing The Voice of America.
VOA Africa Radio, we let the sound tell you the story. News, sports, science and entertainment. Available to you 24-7. Tune in on your local FM stations. We are also available on the medium waves, 909 kHz and 1530 kilohertz. Our short waves are 6080, 15580, 4930, 15165, 15580, and 17530 kHz. VOA Africa, your trusted source for news.